Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads. Hey, it's Anna. Wherever you are, we hope you are finding some pockets of relaxation and cool this summer. We've been hearing from a lot of you lately in our email inbox. Some of you are sharing your experiences of estrangement with us. Others of you are describing your personal style transformations as we are gathering again in public after so much time apart. And we're also hearing your fears after the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade. And your questions when it comes to student loans and public service loan forgiveness as federal student loan payments are set to resume at the end of August after being on pause since the start of the pandemic. All of this comes in through our email inbox at deathsexmoney at wnyc.org. And our ongoing conversation with you is what makes this show so special. So thank you for being a part of our listening community. Whether you're new or have been here for years, we love being able to ask you big, sometimes sensitive questions and to hear the stories you share back with us. Again, that email is deathsexmoney at wnyc.org. And as we sort through the latest stories and questions you're sending us, and we work on some episodes that will be coming out soon, we thought we'd share another episode with you based on stories you told us. This one is about drinking and alcohol use. This episode first ran in 2019, pre-pandemic, which obviously feels like a really different time. And since then, in the first year of the pandemic, deaths related to alcohol use increased in the United States by 25%. So we thought it'd be a good time to listen back to this episode, to hear our shared experiences of drinking, not drinking, and when some of you realized it was time to cut back. We hope you enjoy it. I always wondered when I was going to get my adult card. You know, you think it's going to be at 18 and then at 21. And really now I'm thinking maybe (laughs) 34 is when I got my adult card and drinking on a Thursday night makes Friday not so pleasurable. Your adult card comes in the form of just a hangover, feeling crappy. That's (laughs) what adulthood feels like. (laughs) It's not fair. They don't tell you that. This is Death, Sex, and Money. Let's talk about alcohol. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. Not drinking definitely did not solve my problems. And need to talk about more. Oh, this is what a hangover is? Oh my God, it's the worst. (laughs) I'm Anna Sale. Carrie is a listener in her mid-30s. She lives in Indianapolis, and she got in touch with us when we asked you to tell us about your relationships with alcohol. What do you like when you're a little buzzed? I'm giggly, and my face usually gets a little more pink, uh, and I lose my volume control to some degree. (laughs) (laughs) And if there's a microphone, I might pick it up and sing something. You just never know. (laughs) Carrie told me that drinking is a part of her daily routine. She likes having a glass of wine with her husband after work during the week, and then on the weekends. I have a pretty core group of girlfriends and If we're getting together, there's definitely going to be alcohol there. So we'll have, usually if it's the ladies, some wine. Or we're really into the, like, spiked sparkling waters right now, probably because those don't have a lot of carbs, and we're all very, you know, carb conscious, and we're trying to be healthy, and transitions into drinking those instead of drinking Bud Light. (laughs) And how many of those will you have when you're with your girlfriends? Um, Three or four, if it's a night where we're trying to, hang out and party, you know, maybe five. 
maybe. But as she's getting older, Carrie is noticing that all that alcohol doesn't go down as easily as it used to. And she's starting to wonder what it would be like to cut back a little. It's been a piece of everything since we've turned 21 or 18 that we have, you know, always had a drink or been drinking when we've been at parties. And it is a fundamental shift. And I just don't want that to enter into the dynamic. Would it be a big deal if you were with a group of of women that you hang out with on a weekend and they're all getting ready to crack open their their spiked seltzers and you're like, (laughs) I'm just going to have plain seltzer? It's funny that you're hitting on this because summertime just came around here in Indy and we're probably all going to be getting together soon. And I have had that conversation in my mind. I definitely think that at least someone in the group would say, what's up? Or how come you're not drinking? Or Are you pregnant? That's what, they, that. that's what they will say. <laughs> I know. Every time. I just don't want anybody to think that if I'm not drinking and they are, that it, I would be judging. And I still want them to come over to my house. <laughs> and I still want them to hang out with me. <laughs> and it's so funny that I'm 34 and that is a worry that if I weren't drinking that maybe the party would move to someone else's house. When we asked about the role alcohol plays in your life, we heard that for a lot of you, drinking is about more than getting a buzz. I enjoy, you know, the taste of beer, having a glass of wine. It helps me to relax when I go on dates with my husband. I enjoy being loud and rude and whatnot. There's so much of adult life that's built around alcohol. Just try to go to a picnic with friends and not have a drink. They think I'm being like a buzzkill. And then the scary part is, is, is that you've become so conditioned to this is what I need to have fun. This is what I need to go on dates. This is what I need to, to have a great night out with my friends. And now all of a sudden you're 31 and you're thinking, if I was to stop drinking, how do I even exist? It's easy to think of drinking in black and white. Either you do it or you don't. But the thing we heard from you is that in the middle, there's a big, confusing gray area. You know, am I having a drink because I need a drink or because I want a drink? Or is it who's in control? I don't know that I would identify as sober, but I'm not not sober. I'm trying to quit drinking, but I drink once a week, you know? It would feel weird to show up to a recovery group in that stage. There has been times, not a lot, but a couple of times where I, like, go into the fridge, I grab a beer, I go into the bathroom, I lock the door, I crack it, and I drink it. I don't get drunk, but it has become a ritual for me that I rarely forego. More than 70% of American adults drink alcohol. And the number of binge drinkers has been increasing dramatically the last 15 years across demographics, but especially for women of all ages and older adults. According to the CDC, binge drinking means five or more drinks per day for men or four or more drinks per day for women, at least once a week. But you don't have to drink that much in one sitting to raise red flags. I am very aware that the amount I currently drink would be considered a problem by, say, a doctor. This is a voice memo we got from a listener named Rachel. She told me she drinks pretty much every day, one or two drinks at a time. And for women, the CDC calls that heavy drinking because it's eight or more drinks a week. Rachel knows those statistics because she's a therapist who's counseled people struggling with addiction. You know, I don't have conflict with my spouse or my kids. I don't neglect household chores or 
drink during the day, but I do look forward to it. And I sometimes will do things like have one drink before my husband gets home so that after he gets home, I can have another one and he won't suspect that I've had two. Rachel lives in the Midwest with her husband and two young kids. When I got on the phone with her, she told me that at the end of a long day of seeing clients and parenting, drinking helps, and she's not sure how to feel about that. When I get to a place where I realize that, like, that is becoming my shortcut to self-care, that that's, uh-huh. like, the only thing that I'm doing. Like, if if feeling buzzed at the end of the day is the only way that I'm achieving that that's personal space for myself, like, that's a problem, I think. And what's the drink you start with when it's, like, time to have a drink and unwind? So I either will, you know, open a bottle of wine or, you know, one that's already open or a gin and tonic. Usually those are my my two go-tos. Do you feel like, I sort of feel like pop culture in this moment uh, is definitely encourages me as a young mom to drink and indulge. Like, the idea that, like, uh, that we need this or we, we, you know, at the end of a long day, this is the way that we can, like, get in a bubble bath with Dove bars and a glass of white wine. Like, that's what, that's what we're supposed to do to take care of ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it, you know, and it's just so easy to just pour a glass of wine and call it good. <laughs> you know, like, I mm-hmm. checked the self-care box for the day. Um I think it was, it might've been my husband who he was, we were having a conversation about, about my drinking and like my desire to just like check out at the end of the day. And he was like, well, but like, you deserve more though. (laughs) He's like, Mm. you, like you deserve that. Yes. And more like you deserve to leave this house. He was like, challenge yourself to like, think of something else. And, like, when he said that, I think I was kind of defensive. I'm like, well, like, you think of something else. Like, this works for me. <laughs> Good, you know? Like, who are you to tell me I have to do something else? But but the more I thought about it and what he really meant, I was like, yeah, that like, that's that's true. And it's work to find it, which sucks. <laughs> and I don't like doing that work. But it's something I'm really, really pushing myself to do right now. It's like, yes, you can have your glass of wine, but like, then what else are you going to do? And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. There have honestly been days where I decided I wasn't going to, and I got home and I was dealing with a potty training disaster. And I was like, screw that. I'm having a drink anyway. (laughs) A lot of you wrote in about drinking to take the edge off of parenting. And some of you wrote in about watching your parents drink. Does your dad know you call him an alcoholic? He does. He does. He's not, he doesn't really like that. A listener we're calling Horatio told us he worries about how much his dad drinks and has for years. He doesn't admit to it being like an addiction of alcohol, but he does consume a lot of it every night. He was in the military and uh, got injured um, doing his work and... uh, It's really just a big coping mechanism for his pain. You've talked about his drinking with him? Yeah, yeah. Because uh, sometimes he travels for work. He's usually a construction uh, supervisor. Mm -hmm. And so he hasn't had a DUI, but he's been at risk of one certain times. 
and I that worried me. I've I've gone off and on of like, hey dad, let's let's be sober together, um, so that we can become like better together. I want you to be healthy with me. And what will he say when you ask him not to drink? Sometimes I've just like, okay, I'll keep it in mind. Thank you for being honest with me. But also like, well, it's not that much of a problem. Horatio is 22 now. He's living away from home for the first time and thinking about how much he wants to drink. I go through processes of, should I just quit because I don't want my family to be affected if I do have this addictive lifestyle? But uh, I don't know. Are you currently drinking alcohol? I am. I do. Um, I still have Mike's Heart Lemonade in my uh, fridge at home, and I'll, I'll have a Mike's Heart with my dinner and watch shows. By yourself? Yeah, mostly by myself, sometimes with roommates. When you reach for that Mike's Hard Lemonade, um, it sounds like there's a, you know, there's a heaviness that comes with alcohol, um, having kind of seen what, what, what your dad's going through. Um, what is it that you're reaching for? I think it's reaching for just, uh, I guess it is a little bit of a release from like an eight hour shift of like being all, uh, gussied up in business casual clothes and I can get home and, uh, you know, make my own food and be control of my own environment that I can't necessarily, like, do that in office always and uh, being, like, just kind of relaxing. And I guess alcohol is a little bit of my relaxer at a certain point. You know, in my 20s, I drank a lot, but so was pretty much everyone in my life around me. I imagined that anyone and everyone around me holding a beer was also a binge drinker. My mom was in rehab when I turned 21, so there's always been this weird kind of dichotomy of this is the substance that she had been using to try to kill herself, and this is the substance that all of my friends used to have fun and dance and flirt. I mean... I'm pretty good at chugging beers. I can chug a pint in in probably less than four seconds. I've beat a lot of boys doing that. I'm really good at keg stands. How old were you when you did your last keg stand? (laughs) Um, I was 24. A listener we're calling Jean is 32 now. But back in her 20s, she drank a lot for work. Her job was being a beer girl, as she calls it, working in kitchens and bars and finally in marketing for a microbrewery in the Pacific Northwest. She spent a lot of time at beer competitions and festivals. You know, at one event, I might have five or six beers in one night. Um, And yeah, I I loved it. I met a lot of people. I had a lot of friends. Um, People loved me. So every time I showed up, everyone was excited to see me. And that felt good. Were there ever stretches during that time where you thought, I don't really feel like drinking beer this month. I'm going to take a break. Um, I I wouldn't say this month. It was more like, I don't feel like drinking beer today. I'm going to take a Uh break. But by the, by the time, by the time it started, I mean, it really hit me that 
that I couldn't keep doing it forever. I started to feel the toll on my body. Um, and, and there was a time clearly where I was like, this is not sustainable. When you were noticing that drinking was, was starting to be a little harder on your body, what did you notice first? Um, I threw up a lot. You know, it was like I would drink all night and go to bed. And I, the first thing that would happen is I'd wake up in the morning and I'd have to throw up. Um, and so a lot of times I'd spend my mornings just being ridiculously hungover and puking for hours upon hours upon hours. Um, I remember a specific time where I was judging a beer festival and we had been drinking all night long and then we had to judge beer the next day. And I, I just could not take another sip of beer. And I felt so bad because as I'm, as I'm judging these breweries beers in between, um, type, you know, styles of beer, I was going to the bathroom, silently puking in the bathroom, and then coming back to judge the next round of beer. Jean left that job about five years ago. A big reason was that she realized that while she was working, she was driving drunk. There would be days where I would drink eight, nine, ten beers, and then have to drive home from a festival in the next city over, and, you know, I had a 300-mile drive to get home after drinking all day long. Um, and it's, it's, it's crazy because I never got pulled over. I never got in an accident. I never got a DUI. When you left the brewery and when it was no longer your job to be the fun woman passing out beer, did you, like, when you went out, did you have to figure out how to be in a different way when you were drinking? Yeah, most certainly. I, um, I, I still, I still feel right. 32 years old now. And I still struggle with knowing how to be out and about when I'm drinking. Cause you know, more so than being addicted to alcohol or being addicted to beer, I was addicted to the attention that I was given because of that environment. And when I got out of that environment, more so than missing the beer, I missed all that attention. Um, and I had to really, I had to really redefine myself so that I felt valuable because I, I definitely felt like I didn't have anything to offer if I, if I wasn't the happy, flirty beer girl. Coming up, strategies from those of you who decided to cut back on your drinking and stories from those of you who know you need to. It's getting to the point where I think that I might need help. Um, and it's, it's scary to even say that out loud and look at myself. <sighs> I don't know. As I said at the beginning of this episode, you have been sending us questions about having to start making payments again on your federal student loans after the pause that's been in place throughout the pandemic goes away at the end of August. We are collecting your stories and questions, and we'll be putting them to an expert to help you through this transition. One listener, Sarah, told us she moved to Australia during the pandemic and is no longer eligible for public service loan forgiveness. But she's not sure how aggressively to resume payments when they're due, if some sort of other government help could come. I'm waiting, along with everybody else, to see what the Biden administration does about forgiveness. 
even if it's just 10 grand. You can send your questions and stories about student loans to us by Tuesday, August 2nd, and we'll do our best to get you some good answers. Record a voice memo and send it to us at deathsexmoney at wnyc.org. This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. We have had a lot of exciting new things to share with you about the show recently, but this might be some of our biggest news yet. Death, Sex, and Money is officially going to be live in New York City at the Tribeca Festival on June 11th. And I want to personally invite you to the live taping we'll be doing with the legendary journalist Kara Swisher. If you know Kara's work, you know her ability to get people to tell her things is unmatched. And she does it in her signature, hard-charging way. She's not afraid of things getting a little combustible. I have a slightly different interview style, so we're going to talk about that and play around with that in experimental ways that I think will make this a special show unlike any of our other live shows up to this point. And it's not often that I get to do a live Death, Sex, and Money show in New York, so I really hope to see you there. Whether you're in the city, on the East Coast, or just been looking for a reason to visit New York City, come on June 11th for this show. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash Death, Sex, Money. We are so excited to see you there. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. There are a lot of things that make you change the way you drink. I have had a DUI. I converted to the Mormon church. I was more of someone that just couldn't stop once they got started. That shit is too damn expensive, and ain't nobody got time for that. This is a voice memo we got from a listener named Marva in New York City. She's 29 and works in tech. And before she moved to New York, she lived abroad in South Africa and in France. I got very, very, very used to um, drinking uh, quality alcohol that was also extremely cheap. But when she got back to the U.S., she had sticker shock when it came time to buy drinks. So she told me she made a rule for herself. I sat down and I was really into budgeting at that time. And I looked at I looked at how much I was making, which I was working in a nonprofit, so it was not a lot of money. Um, and I looked at what I wanted to be spending money on. Um, and in order to be able to spend money on the things that I like most wanted to, I knew that I had to let certain things go and not buying alcohol or, or being intentional about the way that I buy alcohol just seemed like um, kind of like an easy way to to manage that, if that makes sense. Yeah. So you're like like looking at a spreadsheet and you're deciding, here's my new rule about alcohol. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, so, for example, like, I a lot of my money goes to, like, traveling. Um, so I'd, I'd prefer to, like, put my money into that, for example, um, as opposed to, like, a $15 drink. For the most part, Marva tries not to spend any money at all on alcohol. But when the booze is free, she indulges. So I was at a, a wedding this past weekend, and there was an open bar, which was great. Uh-huh. But I ended up drinking more than I should have. Um, and I, I knew it. Like, I, I knew as I was drinking that last glass of wine, I knew that I didn't need that. But I did it. I did it anyway. Um, and I was really disappointed in myself the day yeah. after. Like, when when I have it, like, I, I must consume it all or as much as I can. Do you ever have a special occasion where you buy yourself a bottle of wine? No, nothing nothing has come up, but I will say I just started a new job within the last um, three or four months. Mm-hmm. And uh, we do have like our Friday happy hour, which is free. Um, but in addition to that, like, if I hope nobody from work hears this. Um, if you stay till the end, I know like it's a, it's a common thing. People might take like a bottle of whatever's left over. But I have stayed till the end quite a few times. Um, and I do have, I do have two <laughs> bottles that I've taken from work <laughs> and I have not opened them yet. I don't know what I'm waiting for. I don't know if I'm waiting for a special occasion or if I'm waiting for like someone else to hit me up and say, Hey, I'm having a party. And then I can just like reach for that and bring it. But I, I do have those on standby uh, just in case. <laughs> A listener named Meredith also wrote in about finding a creative way to monitor her alcohol consumption. She's never wanted to give it up completely. She grew up in an Irish and Scottish family, and for her, drinking brings up a lot of nice memories. Even when we were kids, we would have family happy hour. Um, So, of course, the kids would have like a Shirley Temple or a ginger ale or something. Um, But my parents would always use it as a time to catch up and connect with each other. So we got included, too. And so in your mind, like, what, what are some words that you think of when you to describe, like, what it's like when your family's all drinking together? It's a little silly. Uh, we're all really loud. Um, uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, and then we're generous. I think um, hospitality is really important to my family, too. So, um, you know, even if you're drinking or not drinking, you know, um, we want you to come in. We want you to have a beverage, you know, soda water or a glass of wine and um, be comfortable in our house. And that's how Meredith approached drinking as an adult, too. She got a job in politics, moved to D.C., and alcohol remained a part of her life. In her mid-20s, though, she started a new tradition. So the real origin story of Sober September is that I had to be in a pink bridesmaid's dress on October 1st for a wedding. (laughs) (laughs) So... I made a bet with myself that I was going to you know, give up drinking for the month of September and go to the gym a couple times a week. Like nothing crazy on the workout side, but it was, it was a big step to not drink, you know, for a whole month. And I invented the excuse, right? I just made it up. I said, uh-huh. oh, it's sober September. And, and everybody thought, I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. Did you? And now that I do it every September, people are like, oh, you do that every year? I'm like, yeah. How many sober Septembers have there been? Uh, the first one was in 2012. A lot of them. A lot, yeah. And now I've moved uh-huh. uh, to I don't drink during Lent either. Um, and that has a little bit more spiritual component, of course. Um, so yeah, Sober September has been um, like a really great practice. Has it ever felt like you're testing yourself to make sure you can 
stop completely? Oh, definitely. Yeah, that's why I describe it as like a light switch, right? Like, I, I, like one of, in the first couple of days, I'm always like, do I have a headache? Do I feel weird? Does my body feel deprived? And if I can say no, I feel great. Still, when September is over, Meredith loves getting back to drinking. With her family, and now with her boyfriends, too. So my boyfriend's parents are Peruvian Americans. And so like a really fun night is we'll go over to their house and uh, my boyfriend's father will make Pisco Sours. Mm-hmm. Um, and he just like takes so much pride in making them, you know, like he like hand squeezes all the lime juice. And so like we'll have like a round of Pisco Sours to like kick it off and then we'll barbecue and then no one else in the house drinks like dry white wine and that's my thing. So, you know, um, my boyfriend's mom will be like, hey, hey, we, we remembered that you like this, you know, <laughs> and so like then I'll yeah. have a couple glasses of that while we're like sitting around and talking and um, that's a really fun night. Marva used her budget to cut down on her drinking. Meredith used the calendar. And Drew, a 35-year-old listener in Texas, used a pill. When he was young, Drew watched his dad struggle with alcohol abuse. And about a year ago, he felt like he was drinking more than he wanted. So he asked his doctor to prescribe him antabuse, a drug that makes you violently sick if you drink while it's in your system. At first, Drew's doctor suggested more traditional approaches, like counseling or a 12-step program. But Drew just wanted a little help cutting back. He didn't want to get completely sober. And so I kind of explained it to him hey, I don't have a huge alcohol problem, but, you know, every third night I get that little voice saying, hey, you know, what would be great is a beer and a cigarette. And this just takes that temptation away completely. Um, and he was, he was very cool about it, you know, wrote me a prescription for it. Um, uh-huh. And that's still what I do. I take one either every day or every third day. And then, you know, if the weekend's coming and there's like, you know, a gathering where I might want to have a couple of beers at, you know, I'll make sure I don't take one for the five days leading into that so I can have a couple of beers at, you know, a party or what have you. And have you ever had alcohol after taking antabuse? Um, I have. Um, I've missed time that once or twice. And uh, you figure it out really quickly. It, it hits what you. What happens? Oh, God. Um, you can really figure it out within half a beer. Um, your skin will flush bright red. Um, your heart will start palpitating. Shortness of breath. Um, you'll start to get a headache, uh, your eyes have trouble focusing, it's hard to think. And this is, this is from about half a beer. So it's, it hits you really hard, really quickly. When you do drink, when you cycle off, when you plan ahead and, and don't take the pill for a few days, do you feel guilty? Do you feel like you're giving yourself a treat? How do you think about it? Uh, it's, it's really like giving myself a treat. Um, if it's just three or four beers, uh, you know, then it's a, or, you know, a bottle of wine with my significant other, then it's a, oh, hey, this is, this is a nice thing. And I know I'm not going to do it again tomorrow. So I'm just going to enjoy this while uh, the evening lasts. And I'm not, I'm not an alcoholic. I don't consider myself an alcoholic. I like to abuse alcohol, but I don't have all the crazy symptoms of, of alcoholism and drinking to a bottom and, you know, every, everything that's associated with that. How do, you, how do you think about that distinction, having seen alcoholism up close in your home growing up? Um, man, that's a, that's a heavy question. Um, I guess I, I never got quite to the point of, you know, 
um, I was able, you know, on multiple points to just kind of stop drinking when I, when I wanted to, and just through force of will. And, and to me, I think that's, um, a big part of the distinction is if, if you can make a, a choice to not drink, um, then you are, you know, maybe not as down that path of addiction. That, that to me is the, the marker of an alcoholic, or that's, that's where I, you know, draw the distinction. I have a very clear memory of the exact moment in my life when I thought to myself, I really just want to have three gin and tonics and feel completely removed from my life. I was using drinking to mask some pretty serious uh, PTSD. To sort of run away from my own issues with my career and job stuff and finances and relationships and men. And I was definitely using it to avoid my life. I believe that I was always very, very uncomfortable in my own skin, at dis-ease with being me. And drinking helped me feel a little bit more comfortable, a little less raw. It worked for a long time and then it didn't anymore. One night I drank too much and it pretty much ended my job. I hurt myself, I gashed my leg, I still have a scar. I got rushed to the emergency room because I woke up puking up blood and pooing out blood. The last time I blacked out, I woke up in a hotel room with a man that I don't even know where the heck I uh, connected with him. And that was kind of it. That was the death knell of me drinking. Just like, this is over. I'm done. I'm done. I chose to go into 12-step program. I admitted into detox. And I've never looked back. I haven't had a drink in over three months. It's about 12.30 on a Thursday night. Um, and uh, it just so happens to be my one-year anniversary of quitting drinking. Now I have 16 years of sobriety. And I am two years, seven months, and 16 days sober. My sobriety date is May 5, 1978. Two years without alcohol, here I am. Happy birthday to me. One listener, who wanted to be called Jackie, sent us a voice memo because she wants to change the way she's drinking. It's gotten to the point where I can't function without it. Jackie just turned 21 last month, but she's been drinking since she was 18. She's worked a lot in restaurants and just recently got a new office job in customer service. I mean, I can go through my workday, but the whole workday, I'm just counting down the hours to when I can drink when it's the evening and it's acceptable for me to have a drink. Um, I consider myself a very outgoing and fun person, and I used to be able to be that without alcohol. But at this point, I need alcohol to just be myself, or at least that's what I, what it feels like. And it's, it's scary. Like, I'm scared, and I don't feel like I can talk to anyone about it. What do you drink? Um, I drink a lot of beers, and I take a lot of shots of vodka mainly, mainly vodka. I drink almost every day. And when you drink every day, where do you drink? Just at home. Um, my kitchen is kind of hidden from the rest of the apartment. So if you take a, a few steps into towards the back of the kitchen, no one can see you. And so something that I've noticed I do a lot is I, I take shots 
without other people. Like even on nights when we're all taking shots, I'll like go into the kitchen and just take a few more. (laughs) And I don't know why I do that. And they don't know it's a secret. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've kind of, I've kind of said, you know, passing things that like, Oh, I I need to stop drinking so much. Like, but I've never used the word alcoholic. I've never said that word out loud to the people in my life before. Mm -hmm. Do you think you have a problem with alcoholism? I think I, I think I do. Yeah. I think, I think I depend on it. Like it's, I'm, I'm like obsessed with it. I don't know. Jackie didn't want to say exactly where she lives, but it's in a big city. She shares a two-bedroom apartment with a friend and her boyfriend. She knows he's noticed the problem, too. He's a little bit older than me, just by a couple years, but he doesn't he doesn't drink like I do. And it definitely comes off as, like, just, I'm out of control, it's obnoxious. Like, you know, I it, it's not a good look. It's not a good look to get absolutely shit-faced and embarrass yourself. And I've embarrassed him a few times. It's nothing ever too bad, but it's just me acting crazy. And then, like, one time at a party, I tried to take a shot, but my body, like, rejected it. And I, like, spit it all over his friend. That sucked really bad. Um, Just things like that. I know that he just, he has to roll his eyes at me all the time because of the things that I do. Has your drinking affected you at work, do you think? Yeah, a little bit, I think. Because, like, I wake up late all the time. I mean, I've, I haven't, I've only been late to work once, but I have had to spend so much money on calling a lift because I'm, I'm, I'm like, really, really pushing it. Like, I will call the lift at 7.50, and I need to be there at 8. Like, I would be saving so much money if I was just taking the train like I should. Um, and also, it, I, it does make me so sick. Like, I have headaches so much. Like, I can feel my body, like, like I'm really young. I'm, I'm 21. I can feel my body just, like, slowing down and being affected by it. But I, the only thing that makes it feel better is drinking more. <laughs> you have cravings. Yeah. And when you picked up your phone to record a voice memo for us, mm-hmm. uh, why did you want to talk about your drinking? Well, because I think I knew that I was starting... I knew deep down that I was starting to have a problem and I was starting to get scared and I'm so embarrassed. Like I'm so embarrassed about it. I don't like talk. I don't want to talk to anyone about it, but something I needed to do something. And like, when you guys are like, Hey, call us. Like when I heard that first, like when I heard it for the first time in the episode, I like, I felt like I just got punched in my stomach. I was like, Oh, you have, you have to do that. That's all you can do right now. Like this is, this is the control that you can take. That's something that yeah. felt within reach. Mm-hmm. Um, what would be the next thing that you could do? I, I think the next thing I would do is I would have to put it in the hands of someone else. I'd have to say, hey, like, don't let me drink. Like, don't, just don't let me. Because I can't do it myself. I, I'm just... So not ready to confront it, I guess. Can you yeah. explain that to me? Because we're talking mm-hmm. about it, and mm-hmm. you're you're confronting it. You're admitting it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So what is the thing that you don't want to do? I don't want to... 
I don't want to stop. Like, I want to, but I don't want to. Like, I'm not, I'm not ready to stop. I don't want to go to, like, a... I don't want to go to, like, Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't want to be in rehab. I don't want to do any of that. I just, I would just, I just want to get a little bit better. A little bit better. Yeah. Hey, Dev, Sex, and Money. Um, <clears throat> here's a little update for you. At the end of our conversation, I asked Jackie to keep in touch. And a couple of weeks after we talked, she sent me a voice memo. Um, just to keep it short and brief, I got way too drunk a couple weekends ago. And don't remember how I got back upstairs. I was at my apartment's pool. And I just woke up in my bed and speaking gibberish to my boyfriend. And my roommate came in and I told her what has been going on and, and that I'm struggling. And I cried to them. And he actually started recording me on his phone so that I could listen to it later and see how I wasn't making any sense. And once I realized that he was recording me, I just started sobbing and um, saying that I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to drink like that anymore. And he said, okay, well, say it, say it to my phone so you can listen to it and hear yourself. And I did. That's a listener we called Jackie. Right before we first put out this episode in 2019, she wrote to say she'd decided to quit drinking for a month. And she told us this week, in 2022, that didn't last. The beginning of the pandemic was really tough for her. She went through a breakup and leaned hard into drinking as a way of coping. She said she's since gotten a diagnosis of bipolar 2 and has medication that's working for her and regular therapy and is mostly avoiding drinking now. She said things aren't perfect, but... I just turned 24, she wrote. I have an amazing job, my very own adorable apartment, and I'm starting back at college next year. If you are struggling with your alcohol use or wondering if the way you're drinking is a problem, we have a link in our show notes to a list of resources. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. This episode was produced by Annabelle Bacon with help from Katie Bishop, Zandra Ellen, Christina Josa, and Emily Nadal. The rest of our team includes Julia Furlan, Zoe Azule, Afi Yellow Duke, Emily Botin, and Andrew Dunn. Our intern is Lily Clark. The Reverend John Delure and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Instagram at AnnaSalePix, that's P-I-C-S, and the show is at DeathSexMoney on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you to all of you for sharing your stories about drinking. Here's one of mine. My daughter was not yet three when my parents were visiting, and they sat down, and she said, do you want an old-fashioned? <laughs> <laughs> like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. 